it's actually the answer to the real question I was asking, not the one I asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's having at least the wisdom or the patience to work it through and say, okay, thank you for that answer. Um, now, maybe I'll reframe that question. <laughs> this is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Ramsey Tom, the founder and president of the Hawaii-based Life Enhancement Institute, or LEI, that's like a lay, of the Pacific. Working with Hawaii's travel, leisure, and retail industry, Ramsey integrates native Hawaiian cultural values and principles into contemporary business. He was mentored and trained by respected kapuna, or elders, and is a practitioner and instructor of several Native Hawaiian practices, including stress release and meditation, body alignment, and Hawaiian combat or battle art. Well, thank you for the time and the interest in allowing me to share that with you today. First question, though. Is there yes. anyone living that you know of who grew up and their whole life has practiced what you would call an ancient Hawaiian tradition or, or, or religion. Are we too far removed from that? There are families that have maintained their traditions. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's very different from, say, someone that was living at the time prior to contact with the West where things started to change. And so there are various components of our traditions that regardless of what the discipline might be, whether it's building a canoe, a home, or conducting a class in a particular practice, such as hula. Regardless of what it was, it was all tied to spiritual practice, religion, if you would. The religion being the dogmatic practices, the spirituality being the connection to the belief in philosophy. And so many people continue pulling some of those traditions through into those practices. They weren't necessarily here back then, but the families have continued to some of those traditions. And it's not just those traditions faded, but they were actually, from colonialists, tamped down and do That's away correct. with them. That's correct. And um, so much of our cultural identity, if you would, was forced underground. And so while on the surface we may have been practicing the faiths and the traditions that were introduced, which is Asian as well as uh, Judeo-Christian, the various practices that came to Hawaii, there are individuals that continue to practice it behind the curtain, where they could do it without being disturbed or prosecuted even. Mm. Even to the point where we couldn't use the language openly with more than two people in the same room or be considered a riot and therefore arrested and thrown in jail. It wasn't until 1978 that our language was really accepted and allowed to flourish again. So even the language itself wow. couldn't be used. Yeah. Do you remember that change? I do. Um, I am of a generation where my parents weren't encouraged to learn or speak our mother language, which we call Olalo Hawaii, the language of Hawaii. My grandmother, who was born at the turn of the century, really was the last connection. That generation was our connection to those ancestral practices. Uh, so while we became a constitutional monarchy in 1840, much of the language was still practiced up until the overthrow of 1893 and the subsequent 
actions in 1898, which then changed the foundational exchange of currency and language. Everything was done in Hawaiian, the native language, until that time. So my grandmother and that generation wanted to make sure that future generations could assimilate properly. And so she did not use the language openly when we were in her presence. I'd have to actually stand at the door and listen to her speak with her friends. Oh my goodness. But the minute we entered the room, they, they discontinued that conversation. So for some of us uh, who did not actually get that chance, we've had to go back and recover the language. Unfortunately, we now have schools, immersive schools, where the language is uh, alive and, and doing well. So we're, we're quite pleased by that. I wonder if you'd tell me what you do as an interfaith leader. Well, thank you. Um, really, it's about alignment. And alignment is allowing people to be where they are or to move into a convergence of, with what else is there, right? And so an interfaith minister, in my case, is assisting the people in whatever discipline it might be to align with this place and the communities that are here in a way that we can edify the we and not just the me. Is that regardless of what religion someone may practice, that at some point there's a spiritual relationship that these individuals can have. Part of that work is helping us to get to that point, regardless of the dogmatic differences that we may have. So I'm fascinated by this line that we read about you. It said, Ramsey integrates Native Hawaiian cultural values and principles into contemporary business. Yes. That's a surprising line for me. <laughs> now, that even includes teaching martial arts, I believe. That's correct. So I, I, I am trained in multiple disciplines and uh, have been given the responsibility to be, as we say in Hawaii, kia'i. And kia'i means guardian, protector, and in this case, an advocate as well. My students call me kumu, which is also the term for resource or instructor. And so in that role, I continue to advocate and share these traditions that were shared to me by these particular families that were responsible for, or these were their particular practices. And so one of them is the martial arts called Lua, uh, which was a martial art used by, I don't even call it a martial art, it was a battle system. At the same time, on the other, other side of the coin is a practice known as Ho'oponopono, which is a, a balancing internal spiritual healing, as well as an alignment of mind, body, and spirit. And so they both work together hand in hand as um, traditions for balancing, bringing balance back to oneself, one's relationships with people, relationship with place. So that is a big part of what I do in business as well, is to uh, help businesses that come to Hawaii interested in providing their services or their goods to align it with the place rather than imposing it upon the place. Mm. So... Uh, Lots of us have had times or, or at least moments where we felt like maybe our mind and body and spirit, we're not in balance. We can all, I think, relate to that. So yeah. what is a process b uh, that draws on those ancient traditions or that training, battle training, that helps pull things into balance? What do you actually, what do, you actually do? It's acknowledging, one, that we are all connected. There is an underlying principle we call uh, lokahi. And lokahi is a notion of unity. Uh, that's one word for it, um, working together in unison. But it also suggests that we're doing so in solidarity. We may have a disagreement about certain things, but we agree to disagree without being disagreeable, 
right? That's one way of, of putting that. <laughs> the other term is to be ponno, and the term ponno, which is a root word in the Ho'oponopono practice that is now becoming more popularized because of contemporary writers discovering it and now bringing it into the uh, Western lexicon. Pono is really about balance. Uh, it's an alignment between one's mental, spiritual, and physical self. Uh, you might even uh, relate it to the reference of the Trinity, the triune self, the triune identity of father, mother, child, uh, father, whole, whole eye, spirit, and the, the son. So there are interesting parallels, but it acknowledges, one, that we are part of something bigger. We're not separate from it. And that at some point in time, when you become aligned with that, you are now in connection with all things around you. Now, notice I'm not using Hawaiian terms here. These are concepts and principles that really have more universal appeal and practice. And just wherever we are, to your point earlier, the alignment of Hawaiian cultural values, I would suggest that cultural values are those values that we give priority to based on where we live, who we relate to, and how we relate to them. Why I say that is because I think we all value water, for instance. But depending on the access to that water, whether you have to travel miles to get it or you go to your faucet, you may prioritize your relationship with water differently. We both value water. While someone may use the water to dispense of waste because that's easy to do, someone who finds it difficult to access water would not, but instead to revere it with a greater sense of sacredness because of the difficulty in getting that water. Values. So the cultural values, and I think the spiritual values we're talking about, are reflective of our, our relationships with one another and our places, and more importantly, our resources, our food. <laughs> it's been my privilege to visit the islands on a yes. number of occasions and to stay with friends. Uh, we knew them here in the States. They were mm -hmm. from the big island. We've stayed with right. them. Our kids have met. And I want to ask how what we've been talking about from Hawaiian tradition mm -hmm. ties in with what I hear called the spirit of aloha. Yeah. Because that is something that I did experience just in family life, not just towards me, but also mm -hmm. in between the extended family when we've stayed with them. We were instantly within a day, Uncle Steve and Auntie Joanne, and yeah. that has yeah. continued for more than 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I would suggest that you're drawing upon a memory mm -hmm. and a sense of feeling. And so yes. Aloha is very much that feeling. But I like to suggest that there is aloha, and then there is the spirit of aloha. So the way I explain it to some of my students is the difference between baking chocolate chips and smelling chocolate chip cookies being baked. Can you remember the last time you walked into a home where someone was baking chocolate chip cookies or your favorite cookie, peanut butter or otherwise? Can you recall that? Yeah. I'd even ask some of your, your listeners to think about that. <laughs> what, what happened when you experienced that? What, what, what were the conditions going on? Well, I, th I think it was in preparation for a gathering. Okay. And getting together with people who hadn't seen each other for a while. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. and, and just that smell let me know there was something to look forward to beyond just the, the socialization. It was the food was part of it. Yeah. So somehow that triggered something within you. Mm -hmm. What did you say? So I'd like to suggest that when you walked into the room and smelled that, that was the spirit. 
it was lingering. It was everywhere. It permeated all things. More importantly, it permeated you, right? It entered <laughs> you. It, wasn't, it was no longer outside of you, but it was inside of you. And it triggered something inside of you. In the meantime, the cookie was still in the oven. You could experience all of those things without ever touching the cookie. Hmm. So I'd like to suggest that aloha is very much like the cookie in the oven, while the spirit is what permeates the room, regardless of whether the aloha, the cookie is in the room or not. Now, why is that important? Because I think many people want to replicate the cookie, but what they're really looking for is the smell, <laughs> the fragrance, right? So we make, we make the error, I think, in trying to teach people how to bake cookies, the mechanical. And what we're really trying to do is get to the spirit, which is less mechanical. Because in the spirit, what we are experiencing is meaning. When we're baking cookie, we're applying mechanics. And so I think that's the difference between what I would call the spiritual experience rather than the religious one. So when you work with students, and maybe they just have never experienced this, when you see people trying to connect with this that's part mm -hmm. of their own history, what changes do you see in them as they make those connections? Because of the nature of our place, transiency has become a requirement. Not only are we a destination for people to come and visit, but because of the limited space, resources, and challenges economically, we've had many families who have had to leave and go elsewhere mm. to make a living. So they may have been brought up in those traditions elsewhere, coming home at some point in time, because they then could, and having to reiterate, right? And yet there was something in them all the time that was fundamentally Hawaii. And when they come home, they reconnect to that. And oftentimes they refer to that as being the spirit. The experience for them is, it's like reconnecting to an old self, an identity that in many ways was forgotten. It's like finding a room that has been walled off. In architecture, we refer to this as the as-built, right? rather than the original blueprint. When you go to the as-built, you realize that there was a room planned originally that was never built. And yet, when you go back to that room and you remove the wall that is there, you discover things that were left behind. And I find that many people uh, in returning home, and many of my students, who are brought up in one tradition and direction, when they're taught to look in different directions, begin to see things differently. It's not that they weren't ever there. It's just that they had blinders on or they were focused on their muscle memory was to focus on one thing based on a definition provided to them by someone else. Uh, we call those biases, right? So we become very biased in the way we see the world. And it isn't until we are exposed to other worldviews, world way to look at things, that all of a sudden something that had always been there then becomes revealed. So in working with the communities that I'm in, some people refer to that experience as a healing. I like to refer to it as a revealing. 
It's pulling the curtain back, turning the light on where it was dark. In Hawaiian, we say from po to ao, from chaos to order, right? At some point in time, it's just a shift in perspective. And if those perspectives are based on definitions provided from an external source, an interpreter rather than the source, you're really shifting definitions. If you don't mind, I'd like to hear a little bit about your faith journey, what you look to for spiritual direction or as a higher power, and how has that changed from when you were younger till now? No, I appreciate that. Um, I was actually born and raised uh, in the Catholic faith, and at some point in time was actually considering the priesthood. And it was through that walk and through that journey, as well as leaving the islands for some time for educational purposes, really needed to do my own due diligence. At the same time I was learning that, I was fortunate to be educated at a school for Native Hawaiian children, bequeathed to us by our princess, the great-granddaughter of Ali'i, or the chief, that unified the islands. And in this school, they shared with us the traditions and practices, not all, mind you, it was still a school intended to prepare us for the American education and the American experience. However, there were these practices of dancing hula, learning chants, learning our traditions through what we call oli and the language. So as a result of that, knowing that there was a different way, that there are multiple ways, that as a altar boy for multiple years, with an eye towards the priesthood, starting to visit other temples and churches and religions, began to recognize that there was something common, regardless of the practices, whether you're ringing a bell, lighting incense, uh, genuflecting, or standing, that at some point in time, there was a vibration. Whether I was listening to a monotone prayer or to a group singing with guitars and drums, at some point in time, the people in the room were experiencing a vibration that allowed them to raise their consciousness, their spirit, to connect to that thing that made them whole. And it was in that spirituality that I realized that that's really what we're connecting to. And while the source of that, we've given a name, God, Allah, Yahweh, whatever it might be, that it's like the mountain. The path to the top of the mountain may be different. But the view from the, from the peak is always amazing, right? <laughs> it wasn't so much saying that my path to the top of the mountain was important, but what you're experiencing at the top is. And at some point in time, you need to get there. And if we can provide you with lenses and eyes and ears and hearts to be able to experience that fully, rather than in a limited sense, then I think we've achieved something, which is the reconnecting, not just with ourselves, but with divinity, as well as all those that are under and in that family connection. But I think it's that. It's respecting the fact that each of us is part of a, a larger fabric of spirit. And each of us finds a way to that spirit through the teaching and the practices of those before us, the faith of our fathers and mothers. That's a long way to say it. I hope that made any sense to somebody. Makes lots of sense. <laughs> How are you different as a person because of that connection you feel to, to God or the divine? 
Well, many practices provide us with a map. Follow this map to the destination. I came to understand at some point in time, the destination is here, wherever I am at, right? So I may go someplace, but ultimately I need to be comfortable when I'm there in that place. And that comfort is going to come from inside. I'm not defined by my externalities, but it's important to have an internal compass so that when you're lost, you have something to draw from. There's a point of reference. And that point of reference isn't external, but one that is internal. And so my experience with spirituality and divine and God is that to turn in while asking for guidance and direction. In as much as there are prayers, there are practices and things that I think we all go through, I realize those, those rituals, those exercises, right, they allow us to physically say something which is in itself impacting memory and thought. When I say it, I hear it. So I've now experienced it twice. When someone else repeats it back to me, I experience it a third time. But fundamentally, I'm experiencing it. And so all of these things help me as an individual become more ingrained and connected with it, whatever that might be. So are there times you feel you have been, whether through prayer or contemplation, been given answers or been given direction in your life? Absolutely. You know, um, the real question is whether I could get out of the way <laughs> to really hear, see, and experience the answer, because that's the answer, not what I wanted. I've come across a situation that appears to be a barrier, an obstacle. But that was just one of the steps and places I needed to be in order to get to the next place, which was really a right turn rather than left turn. There was a time in my life um, uh, where I actually fell off of a wall as I was working and investigating its structure. And when I fell, I damaged my knee. And at that moment, I recognized that, as I used the word earlier, punno, that was the appropriate thing for me right then and there. Now, did I want a broken knee? Absolutely not. Did I want surgery? Of course not. I want surgery on their knee. Did I want to have to leave all of my activities for recuperation? No, I didn't. But what I had done previously was prayed for a shift, a change. I recognized that my, my life at the moment was moving very quickly, but I couldn't get off that path because I was caught in the inertia of that. And so I think the ancestors, divinity said, okay, Let's slow you down a little bit, right? <laughs> and so I was humbled. They took a knee. Mm. <laughs> Literally. Right? Literally. I had to take a knee. It was like, calm down. When in Hawaii, we say ha-ha-ha to find humility, to humble oneself. And in that moment, I was humbled. But it was in that moment because of an awareness that I began to experience what was ponno. I was exactly where I needed to be. I was at the right moment for my good and for the good of others. Now, it's actually the answer to the real question I was asking, not the one I asked. <laughs> right? it's, it's having at least the wisdom or the patience to work it through and say, okay, thank you for that answer. Um, now, maybe I'll reframe that question. <laughs> I'd love your impression. I was able to see a couple of places where on the shoreline, mm -hmm. there were remains of what they called an ancient Hawaiian temple. And I don't know mm -hmm. if that was an accurate description. 
I wonder, as you look at a place like that, what do you feel? What do you think? There's something within us. Maybe it's our DNA, our memory. We are what we eat. You know, so the cellular memory of the place is triggered when you see some of these things. So while I may not have actually been involved in the actual building or the use of this particular facility, there's something very reminiscent about it. And that's triggered within me and with many people. Of course, if you, some traditions, they talk about previous experiences, incarnations and lives. So some people go there and say, well, I must have been here at one point in time. For me, it's just like, it's acknowledging that, yes, this is a very important place for me, for them, for others. And it is in that point, acknowledging the sacredness of that place uh, and connecting to that sacredness. And so in those places, we gain knowledge, but more importantly, we experience wisdom. And so I would say that these places are keepers of wisdom, and that's why we need to keep them. We can build upon the knowledge that we're gaining by reflecting on the wisdom in these places. And so while you did not pursue the path to priesthood within the Catholic Church, you find yourself being one of the elders passing on and training and showing that very path. So it would seem... (laughs) Yeah. Some have actually referred to me as kahu. In Hawaiian, kahu is the reference for minister, if they're learning something. Otherwise, it's just Ramsey. <laughs> and I, perhaps the best title is the one that my daughter uses, which is simply dad. But more importantly, I find myself being student because she's teaching me a lot more about being a dad than I'm teaching her about being a child. Ramsey, is there something that I should ask you but I don't know to ask? Or something that you want to be sure that you talk about that we haven't? Thank you for that. You know, not too many people offer that opportunity. Uh, There's a tendency for us to refer to ourselves collectively as Hawaiians. That's kind of like saying we're all humans. We're all part of a larger family. And yet each of us has our own paths. We happen to be a people of a culture, but we've experienced multiple cultures. So the religions and spirituality of Hawaii is that I can be of Hawaiian ancestry, but practicing Buddhism because my great-grandfather might have come from Japan. Or I may be uh, studying Judaism because my great-grandmother came from that tradition. Hawaii is that place. And so while we do have our Hawaiian-rooted culture, culture of this place, It's a culture that has embraced all other cultures. We've married everyone, right? And so I'd like people to understand that, that simply because they call us Hawaiian, we have our identities, our individual identities, which are driven by our education, by our economic status, by our religion and their spirituality, which is diverse. But what connects us is the spirit of this place. And if anything, it's to acknowledge that each person, regardless of all those things, is a special human being, is a special spirit. And to respect where they've come from in a way that adds to who I am and me to them. That's the relational part, I think, that Hawaii has to offer. That's our time for today. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. 
In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.